Welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host Titus and today I am joined by Oliver Trolldy for a conversation in our postmodern conservative series. Today we will be talking about the intellectual dark web, who we reading, what the publications are, what the personalities are and what the issues are with the restoration or the attempted restoration of enlightenment public reason in the environment of Twitter, of online publications, the new digital media or at least a version of it. First of all, Oliver, thanks a lot for joining me. Yeah, thank you for having me. Great to have you on. And since it's your first podcast with us, please introduce yourself for our audience. Yeah, my name's Oliver, as you said. I'm a graduate student in philosophy at the University of Notre Dame. I study a lot of things that aren't politics, actually. I study metaphysics and epistemology, the philosophy of language, the philosophy of science, topics like that. So very kind of traditional Anglophone analytic philosophy and, you know, ideally in the model of Bertrand Russell and W.V. O'Quine and David Lewis and that sort of tradition. In my online writing, I write about cultural politics, I guess you could call it, from a philosophical perspective. I try to analyze people's arguments in the way that I've trained to do academically. I also write about campus controversies. So part of the way that I got involved in the intellectual dark web to begin with was I wrote several articles about academic controversies and campus controversies. Now I mostly focus on, I read a lot of book reviews. I really enjoy writing negative book reviews because there's a lot of books published with bad arguments. I think probably there's, I don't know, maybe 10 times as many books, maybe 100 times as many books are published as ought to be these days. And uh, I know that what happens is that people reach a certain point in their career and somebody tells them, it's time for you to write a book, even if they don't really have something to write a book about. And that leads to a lot of bad arguments being made. The very first involvement I had with the intellectual dark web, I guess, was an article I wrote in 2017 about a controversy in academic philosophy that's now known as the Hypatia Affair. A philosopher, Rebecca Tuvel, had written an article. Well, it made the following argument. We should respect people's chosen or felt identities in the case of gender and that there isn't an important moral distinction between a felt or chosen identity in the case of gender and a felt or chosen identity in the case of race. And so we should respect people's chosen or felt identities regarding race. And in particular, we should be in favor of transracialism. So this was around uh, back when Rachel Dolezal was in the news. This article led to her, you know, it was massively misrepresented. It was represented as being anti-trans or turfy, trans-exclusionary, radical feminist, even though as a starting point was that, you know, we should respect people's gender identities and things like that. So it was wildly misrepresented and there were all these calls to have it retracted and the editorial board went nuts and Facebook and Twitter went nuts about it. It wasn't a great, you know, I don't think it should be in any anthologies, but most philosophy articles are not great either. There's probably too many of them, just like there's too many books. And so there didn't seem anything really objectionable about it to me. And so I wrote an article saying as much. And that was kind of how I got started in this. And yeah, that's the beginnings of my story back in 2017. And obviously I've branched out since then in the... When I wrote this Quillette article, this was before the name Intellectual Dark Web had come up. It was around maybe six months to a year before uh, Barry Weiss wrote that article. And I think the name was created on a, Eric Weinstein said it, or one of the Weinstein brothers said it on a Sam Harris podcast or something like that. I don't really know much about that side of thing. I don't watch the YouTube types. I don't listen to the Sam Harris podcast, but I know that a lot of the people in these circles do, and that's where the name came from, I think. Yeah, I think you're right. First of all, as to what is going on, there is a strange confluence of online activity that so often is like a mob 
it's crazy, it's very fast, and it's very mm -hmm. loud or overwhelming, indeed overwhelming the structures of these sorts of social media platforms. And on the other hand, this nuttiness is often infected with theory. Right. It's not intended to be altogether very serious, and it certainly doesn't invite argument, but it is infected with theory. Right. And if you could have a student movement without necessarily too many students and without actual bodies in physical space, this would be sort of like it. Right. And that's a crazy thing to have happened, but also somehow seems perfectly typical of what will eventually come of the online world. There is indeed overproduction. There's massive democratization of the technology. And as the two clash, it's quite obvious that there's not much to stand in the way, that there aren't institutions or habits or even beliefs that would stop something like the every couple of weeks, every couple of months, some crazy thing happening and people saying a million different crazy things that organize as a dispute, as a mm -hmm. who hates whom, as who's right. for whom and who is against whom. And they do polarize around things that are often unimportant and utterly forgettable. It seems like right, people yeah. are really looking for a reason <laughs> and they'll find one. Yeah, the, the question of people looking for a reason, I think in online politics, if you could even call it politics, but in these online spaces and the activities that occur in these online spaces, one way to think about it is just like, what is this replacing? You know, what is it that people are missing that they look for online? I think some of it is kind of just fellow feeling, you know, just basic socialization. Some of it is obviously a lot of people in online politics. And this goes as much for the people in the IDW as it is for the people they oppose. There's a feeling of powerlessness. Somehow the cogs of society are grinding you down or something like that. Or if you follow a lot of people with the hammer and sickle in their profiles on Twitter, you know, the Twitter Marxist-Leninists or the Twitter communists or tankies sometimes as they're called, eventually you will see a lot of them make some long post about having a chronic pain condition or something like that. You know, a lot of these people who engage in online politics in this way, and I'm by no means an exception, I think are trying to find something that they haven't found in what they call the meat space, right? Certainly, things like the Tuvel affair, I think, are partly caused by that. One of the strange things about something like the Tuvel affair and some of the other things, you know, in prestige media outlets that are kind of similar is a lot of the people, you know, it's one thing if you get mobbed on Twitter and you see a bunch of people who you think, oh, OK, this is some brigade from Tumblr or something awful or one of these websites where, you know, it's a bunch of high schoolers and college kids who are in a certain phase of their life or something like that. A strange thing about something like the Tuvel affair is that it seems people with very good jobs, you know, the sorts of jobs I would love to have, you know, in the humanities job market as it is right now. Philosophy professorship is very hard to come by in America. So a job I would love to have. And they still are obviously looking for some avenue for this anger or this powerlessness or something like that. Yeah, I think you're right that the starting point has got to be that all the dark passions are the return, the revenge of a desire that was deeply dissatisfied. And that primarily does seem to be a desire for companionship. As contemptuous terms like meat space suggest, the way we live is deeply dissatisfying for a lot of people who are very willing to shout about it, to go crazy over it. Right. I do think that, as you also alluded to, most of the insanity that we see online really does have something to do with insanity. 
not with spectacular forms of insanity, with a kind of common form of insanity. Right. People are not just unhappy, they feel that at some level they're going crazy, that either life isn't real or real life is not worth it. Either way, it makes for a lot of misery and even for a glorification of pathology. Uh-huh. There's no getting around how much misery there is in Twitter cultural politics, how much pain, anguish, screaming, damning goes on. Obviously, there is, beyond the fact that it's performative and imitative, also a genuine sense of agony that America has really a lot of people down and they're not being quiet about it. Yeah, and I think maybe this is a way to transition into some of the one way that some people within the intellectual dark web talk about some of the themes that we've been starting with here. They talk about ideas like victimhood, the idea that there's some victimhood culture that's taken over. But of course, it's always been one of the contradictions or tensions within the intellectual dark web and within prior conservative movements or liberal but anti-identity politics or anti-victimhood politics movements that they themselves get a lot of traction from a sense of victimhood, right? So one of the ways that Quillette blew up as a publication was in the wake of the James Damore scandal. You know, it's always very good to have you say, look at the person who was victimized, you know, James Damore. And I actually believe James Damore was victimized. I think not only was he victimized by Google, but there was widespread just simple lying about what the document he created said by literally most of the media out that reported on it, just incredibly widespread dishonesty. But at the same time, there's a kind of contradiction there. If what you're preaching is an anti-victimhood politics, but what you're feeling, I think of it because I'm within this circle as a kind of psychological tension that I need to work out between preaching anti-victimhood, but feeling from day to day, like you're kind of being hunted by these mobs of social justice warriors or whoever they are. Yeah, so that's the first of, I think, several tensions or contradictions within this intellectual dark web sphere. Yeah, I think that this is essentially a problem with the distinction between talking about things and justice. We cannot fully separate them. We talk about stuff primarily because it makes us angry, because we think our rights or somebody else's rights were violated in some way, or that uh-huh. people were denied justice. And that primarily means public humiliation in the online world. There are other right. things, sometimes dangerous things, but primarily it's public humiliation. Uh-huh. And it's not even clear what, what the status of that is in the culture. Does anybody right. give a damn? But the, the more case is indeed typical of these sorts of things because you would think as movements might spread like the intellectual dark web, heroes would arise, people who can champion the cause, who rise above Uh their circumstances, more or less like in the stories. And this indeed happens now and then in historical situations. But James Damore disappeared. Everybody who becomes a flashpoint in some kind of crisis just disappears. That's perhaps the oddest thing about this. We stop talking about these things and also as a matter of justice, it just stops mattering. Maybe has a settlement with Google or something in the works, who knows? We're not going to know. These things are always going to be covered by non-disclosure agreements, of course. Right. So both the talking stops and the justice issue stops. It seems like the media is hysterical for a while. And indeed, this means new venues or new personalities can ride these waves of indignation, punching and counter-punching with words on Twitter. And some come out on top. Maybe everybody feels that, you know, they had a good word-punching session, that that's uh, standing up for the cause in some sense. But then they all vanish. It's yeah, shocking I think... how meaningless and without consequence they are, which I think feeds to what you were saying before, how hopeless we all feel. Yeah. 
it's interesting to connect it to that theme of hopelessness. One thing I would say is that a lot of these media events that happen, and I've been involved in you know Twitter arguments about so many of these flashpoints. One recent example where I don't actually know if I was even on the right side of it publicly was all this stuff in Portland. There's a now former Quilla editor, Andy Ngo, or no, Andy No, who I still don't even remember exactly what the final story was, but suffered some kind of assault, but may have been involved in some other way with joking around with the counter protesters or something like that, or being on obviously on one side rather than another. And a strange thing is that the personalities do start to matter so much in the moment. Suddenly, it seems as though everything hangs in the balance of whether this one random guy from Portland, how he conducted himself or how these other people in Portland conducted themselves, whether they assaulted this guy or were justified in assaulting him. And there are people who are very good at this. So Kathy Young is a writer who's very good at getting into the narrative details of these situations and sussing out just what's true and what's not. But at the end of the day, it can be very, for some reason, we feel compelled to hash out the details of these situations as though that debate, classical liberalism versus progressive identity politics, is going to hang on the kind of characterological and psychological issues of people who had a heated exchange in Portland one day. Companionship is one way of putting it. And this is something that I talk about with people who are concerned about masculinity and how to raise boys and whether boys are not being treated well by the culture as a whole. So one thing that people often talk about is that stuff like these Portland and Berkeley, California sort of encounters between the alt-right and the Antifa, you know, of course, some people get injured, but the main kind of sense of the environment is that it's it's kind of like team sports for people who aren't very athletic, you know. And I think probably for us on Twitter, it is also a bit like that, where it's kind of like, oh, somebody got punched in Portland. It's kind of like, we got a game today, you know, it's game day, you know somebody's the quarterback, you're the wide receiver, you know, here I am, I'm the kind of counter puncher, I'm like the defensive end or whatever, you know, I protect against the other side's arguments or something like that. And everybody kind of suits up and gets into gear. But obviously, if you think about it for just a second, the underlying ideas are not going to be settled by one of these incidents. So there's obviously something else that goes into it. Even just recently on Twitter, you know, I have some friends who publish in evolutionary psychology and cognate fields. And there's a group of other people around Twitter who are mostly uh, advanced college students or early graduate students who kind of go around telling my friends that their research is bad and stuff like that. And there's this combating Discord channels and DMs groups and things like that. And it's all very easy to get fired up about it. And the underlying ideas at a certain point stop being what's important. And what starts feeling important is the personal struggle of it all, the idea of being on a team with your fellows against this other team. But I think that's the sort of thing that people are making up for in these incidents. But it is very strange how quickly they're forgotten, how little they end up really seeming to mean. Yeah, I think you're right that we've got two kinds of problem. One of them is that our reflex is built around procedures for fairness or discovering the truth, whether it's reporting or being intellectually honest when you argue with people. These sorts of things are obviously vastly overmatched by the environment, whether it is a place where people are kicking each other in the head or just Twitter. Either way, right. there's going to be a lot of rules or justice or the police or some system enforcement. It's obviously not happening. Now, at this point, nothing really matters. I mean, people online or in the media pretend that this or that flashpoint is telling or uh -huh. is decisive or causative of some important thing, usually for the worst. But we can all see that no, none of them matter. And they're not adding up in any obvious way either. And they're not going in any direction. But right. 
this wasn't happening before and it's not clear when it's going to stop either something mm-hmm. did snap things have changed and while it's not clear what they're going to do either for discovering anything intellectually or advancing justice in any practical way mm-hmm. but something has changed and it does seem to have to do with the fact that people have a strong desire however fickle for revenge they do feel that there are yeah. important issues of anger at injustice that are playing out and that they need other people to feel just like them to say the same things and of course as much they need somebody to hate these things will not be pacified with some change of rules on twitter they will not be pacified with speeches in the media or what have you and they are also obviously getting completely under the radar of politics there is something afoot that might become consequential at some point if it turns out that it does create a new form of organization. But so far, outside of some media hysterias and stunts here and there, nothing has really happened. And it's incredibly hard to say, at least for me, is this going to turn into something crazy? Is this going to have real-world consequences? We might find out in 2020, since there's a big source of feverish hysteria coming with the election, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Online, it's a very diverse place. There's a lot of different sorts of things going on. One interesting thing about Twitter is this uniquely negative online atmosphere and saying that it makes me wonder why it's the one that's most attractive to me, but we can kind of come back to that or maybe not think about that ever again. But one thing I think that's interesting, if you compare Twitter and the people who are always on Twitter or like me when I'm not deactivated always on Twitter to, for example, my friends who are on Facebook and Instagram and things like that, What they express is almost exactly the opposite of what we're talking about. They express positivity, and I don't know how much you use Instagram or Facebook, but most of the friends I've known who are not very online like I am, their social media usage is all, I'm on this beautiful vacation, I have this beautiful house, I have this beautiful family, I have this beautiful life, I'm never sad, look how positive I am, I don't have any a negative thought in my body, and... Hashtag blessed. Exactly. Hashtag blessed, you know, red wine and friends and fire pits and everything like that. And everything is gorgeous. And if there's anything political on their feeds, it's just the sort of thing that people like me and the intellectual dark web don't like, but often the most very basic anti-Trump, pro-diversity, pro-identity politics, and not from a contentious place, but a kind of empathetic, you know, let's be caring about the people around us because we are so positive and because we do have such boundless loves because our lives are so perfect. That, I think, is the social media usage of a lot of people. And it's interesting, the duality there. You know, I think this is part of why Angela Nagel wrote her book, which I ended up reviewing kind of negatively, but which had an amazing title, Kill All Normies, because the normie internet is so based around branding, creating this image of yourself as being constantly positive, as taking these beautiful vacations and just being successful and happy all the time. And then there's this underbelly of the internet. It's there on Twitter, but also the fact that it's constantly cited in media that there is some link I don't want to characterize the link, I have no idea, but there's some link between the 4chan and the Gamer Gators and things like that and what coalesced into the alt-right. How important that was in Donald Trump's election in 2016, I have no idea, I have no stake in that argument. A fact that's cited less frequently is that many of the left-wing Twitter personalities you see and writers for places like Jacobin and The Baffler, magazines like that, 
Well, they grew up posting on the internet as well on forums like something awful, right? And they're also part of this negative underbelly of the internet. So it's interesting to me that there's this duality between this very stressful positivity that is the characteristic social media usage of your standard normie who you might have attended high school or college with and then the negativity and it's not just the anger but also the memes about depression and things like that if you follow questionable problematic alt-right twitter at all it's much easier to find some meme about just being incredibly depressed and having an awful life than it is to find something like racist or sexist for example that i find interesting you know the positivity of normal social media usage is so anodyne nothing is ever produced from it and on all sides of these debates, there's this massive dynamism and kind of energy around expressing the negative emotions that don't find an expression in so much of social media and so much of online. And I'm part of that as well, you know, with negative book reviews, certainly there's nothing I like more than somebody writes one of these awful books and all these people who are maintaining their brand or image on Twitter are just saying, oh, I can't wait for this book. I'm going to love this book so much. I love these people who wrote this book so much. And I start getting these messages just being, I can't wait for you to just tear this to pieces. And I think that from all sides of these debates, there is a part of maybe human nature or whatever you want to call it that's just it never goes away. You want to see something torn pieces to a certain extent. You just, you don't want to have this constant look at my vacation in the Cayman Islands and my beautiful children life because that's not what people feel. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think about three different levels here. One of them is somewhere between ideology and etiquette. Another one simply has to do with the origins of the internet in the American high school. And I mean big public high schools primarily. And the third thing has to do with deeper problems with human nature and psychology that we'll have to deal with because it's now all on the surface and it leads to scary noticeable things. Now, at the first level with etiquette and ideology are more or less the same thing. You do see that there is an aggressively normal internet that is supposed to be beautiful. You know, the pumpkin spice version of America. <laughs> right? and, yeah, yeah, exactly, and, and, exactly. And that's a very big thing in America. And then there's this other internet that's dark and nasty and does so on purpose, just like goth kids used to be or emo kids or the people who are just bizarre Americans yeah. who hate the fact that popular Americans don't notice them. Right. And so they take their yeah, revenge it's very the high that they can. It's very revenge of the nerds. It's very high school. And since we're involved in this in some level, we have to say that wherever you look at American high school, there's always some weird kids who aren't normal, but aren't that bizarre either. Uh, and and we're stuck there. And a lot of us are catching flack from both sides for that reason, yeah. right? It's not a pleasant place to be, but it is strangely insightful. I don't have a lot against aggressively normal people, but I do realize that there's something crazy about it. Yeah. And they have a lot of sympathy for bizarre people who want revenge on popularity. But I think it's super self-destructive. Why would you do right. that? So I'm caught in between these two factions in America. Think about, you know, American drugs. One end of it used to be something like cocaine or a Wall Street dude playing with a lot of money cookers and blow because it's all about overactivity right it's energy drinks it's coffee or amphetamines right if you're poor it'll take you to jail and rot your health but if you're rich it'll take you through college exactly and it'll take you through the class distinction as yeah things do in america <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's interesting you know this is we're going a little far afield from the idw but talking about the i don't want to get into this because i don't understand why it's so big but talking about these beautiful people I'm sure you know that there's been 
and I don't want to offend anybody involved with it, but to my mind, this very strange series of articles in this publication, The American Mind, about the Twitter user Bronze Age Pervert. So Bronze Age Pervert, if you think about it, is kind of like a bizarro version of the women who post bikini pictures with pumpkin spice lattes, right? Because he posts, what do they say, post physique or whatever. You know, these pictures of incredibly chiseled physique and strings together these kind of half English sentences. So, you know, what I was thinking before I thought of this was that when you said, why would you want to tear down popularity? I thought, well, that's like a great conservative insight. A lot of the alt-right is this very anti-conservative impulse to tear down the structures and tear down what's beautiful against the sort of institutional conservatism of, you know, our colleges and universities and our prestige publications and things like that. So there's certainly an urge in all of these underbelly places to tear down what's beautiful. And then you get these bizarro figures that are playing both sides, you know, both tearing down, but also offering some other thing like Bronze Age pervert. You know, this plays into a conversation I was having with some friends recently about this weird subculture on Twitter of women, including very successful women and women who write for prominent publications and things like that. I don't know a better way to put it than they claim that they sort of are physically disgusting or something, like talking about their body odor. And it seems like a kind of performative grossness. And I wonder if that is also part of the same, you know, I've always tried to understand, you know, a lot of my female friends always told me, well, girls, it was so brave for like Lena Dunham to get naked. And I feel like having this conversation, it's the first time that I kind of starting to understand it because I think it's the same impulse. Lena Dunham is saying, look, I get to do what you do, even though I'm not beautiful. I'm not at the Cayman Islands. You know, I'm not at the gym working out my absurdly spherical muscles and things like that. And so, yeah, I think all of this is kind of 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 a piece. And this is part of where the underbelly comes from in a society where that part is not acknowledged or success involves pretending that you don't have that part, which, of course, I think has always been a theme in, you know, American literature and cinema and things like that. Yeah, I think you're right. As you pointed out about things like the alt-right, there are worse things than saying racist or sexist or whatever things. And that's when you start thinking about suicide and that life isn't even worth living. It's a matter of human nature. What comes out of the root of anger could be hating somebody or violence or whatever, but it could also be self-hatred. Right, certainly. oneself. It's one thing to notice as a lot of us think that things aren't right. This isn't right. This isn't how things should be. But then, you know, you might blame the world, but you might blame yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And as you point out, it's so also the case with all sorts of women writers that there's so much self-loathing on display. Yeah. Again, a kind of glorification of pathology, not just normalizing it or as it were, you know, in the good old liberal tradition of removing the stigma, but actually getting a kind of pleasure uh-huh. and looking for a kind of approval out of it. And that's, I think, its own kind of danger and its own kind of misery. You can create a lot of sympathy around pathology, more or less for the sake of continuing it, praising it, growing your pathologies. And that happens on all sides indeed, because there's so much hopelessness and helplessness around. Yeah. People might be more destructive if they had the sense that, you know, you could achieve something with this destruction. This is why when mobs feel like they're getting something, they're going to destroy, get somebody fired, get somebody at least banned on Twitter. Yeah. Maybe convince somebody to commit suicide. Then they really get into gear. Right. But otherwise, anger is exhausting in a way Uh in which self-loathing is not. Self-loathing is soothing. 
It's like there's this cocaine side of America. There's also a heroin side. Of right. Drinking yourself dry, blacking out because you just don't want to deal with reality. Anymore. Yeah. Because this life of being successful, achieving, being seen to achieve, being seen to achieve if at all possible effortlessly. Yeah. You know, it can get to be too much and you want to just blank out. You just want a way. You just want to stop with all that. Yeah, and that, I think indeed is a big part of the online media environment. What is happening in the souls of people who are writing and reading? And I think that indeed we run far afield of where we started with the <laughs> dark web. But if you think about this is the online media, this is where the intellectual dark web started. Right. The people we're looking to talk about today, the Weinstein brothers, Brett and Eric, Jordan mm -hmm. Peterson, say Ben Shapiro and Sam Harris, right. a bunch of other people. You know, Brett Weinstein was chased out of a university mm -hmm. by the kinds of woke people who feel like they're damaged and they want to take it out on someone. Right. And of course, on the other hand, Jordan Peterson had similar experiences and he has become a kind of foster father to all these millennial Americans right. who feel like they've been abandoned by paternal authority, who feel like they've been betrayed by a society that wants them to be weak and to continuously humiliate them on top of that. So, you know, this is indeed where this new kind of communications by Twitter, by podcasting, by new venues, this is where it's coming from. Right. And it is most of where it is that young people write. It is very online people doing very online things. Yeah, I think talking of the hopelessness and the helplessness you've been talking about. So one thing that I think is good about the intellectual dark web that is probably on some level related to the hopelessness and the way it contrasts with this superficial beauty of normie internet and things like that. I think that a lot of people, at least in the early days of the intellectual dark web, just appreciated calling bullshit on anything. I think there was a feeling maybe five years ago or so. So I'll tell you, maybe I should go back a little bit further. Just from my perspective, I went to college 2004 to 2008 at a small liberal arts college in upstate New York where I had my own you know, small encounter with an identity politics faction that I dealt with very poorly and you know, any bad fallout was my fault. And then I went into broader society and I kind of said to myself, well, there was a bubble on that small liberal arts college campus. Now I'm entering a world where that's not normal. And what happened in my early to mid 20s and into now in my early 30s was all of those ideas that I had found so strange and kind of hadn't understood that, by the way, had been brought largely by some of the, the students at the private schools and, you know, some of the best public schools and things like that and very wealthy international students. There's ideas that I, as you know, somebody who grew up not wealthy and in a large family with basically one income earner. Those ideas, you know, as Zach Goldberg on Twitter has shown, they percolated into prestige media outlets like the New York Times, and they made their way through updates to old critical theory, which was, of course, in many ways kind of skeptical and nihilist, had this anti-playful turn, which I wrote about in early 2018 in an article called Postmodernism Isn't Playing Around Anymore. And there were also these new media outlets, places like BuzzFeed or the kind of updated Slate or Salon, which became just replete with all of the kind of stuff that had seemed wacky even in college and that most people, even at a very small liberal arts college, wouldn't have subscribed to, now became this new hot thing on the internet. You know, an interesting thing, while you were talking about high school, I think in high school, never having been one of the popular kids, I'm not so sure, but I think as I've gotten older, one thing that I've started to think is that probably the popular kids never think of themselves as the popular kids. 
They're just a certain other kind of weird kid, right? So I think all of these hot new writers at BuzzFeed and the New York Times who were into all this stuff, they never thought of themselves as being the new normie, right? They always thought of themselves as this subversive cultural force and kind of didn't realize as they developed what I would call a little bit of an academic and journalistic hegemony. Yeah, so I think the backlash in some sense took them by surprise because they never thought they had achieved a position of power. You know, I think in a lot of ways, no human ever really feels like they've achieved the power that they're seeking. You know, they always feel powerless to achieve the next thing that they want. So obviously, I think they didn't see this backlash from the IDW and other things like the alt-right coming. Yeah, I think you're right. There's always something of a feeling of having just arrived, a certain uncertainty, and also a sense of the cause that you're serving as you're becoming influential that excuses people from considering what their position really is. And in the case of the ideas that are now, broadly speaking, woke, Mm -hmm. they never thought that they would be vulnerable on the intellectual side. Right. And that's what made the intellectual dark web arriving such a shocker. All of a sudden you had people who disagreed with woke journalism, woke social media, woke academia on academic grounds with academic credentials in academic language. And it turned out to be people who are at least as smart as whoever it is that's popular among progressives. That's what seems to have been such a shock when people like Brett Weinstein or Jordan Peterson arrived. Yeah, and credentialed uh, professors with work behind them who had no particular reason to explode, who were just hit by lightning, so to speak, in this new flash mob online world. Yeah, one instance of this that I love talking about is the replication crisis in social psychology. So there was a great deal of social psychology research that was in its own way very woke. So in social psychology, you have this range of results that this replication crisis is cast out on. And in fact, calling it a replication crisis is maybe a little limited. There's all sorts of things that have gone into it. So a range of results from things like stereotype threat, where you claim that if you tell people that a test is of a certain type and they associate their group memberships, you know, gender, race, whatever, with doing poorly on an examination of that type and prime them by reminding them of their gender or race or something like that, then they'll do worse. That experiment has been shown to have a far smaller effect size than was thought maybe 10 or 15 years ago. Again, a very prominent example is the power pose. There's a Harvard professor named Amy Cuddy who had this idea of, oh, like if you stand differently, it's going to make you feel different and communicate all these various things to people around you. And a lot of that was debunked. And of course, this was used as kind of, oh, here's why women aren't as successful because they don't power pose the way men do. And it also sells a lot of books. It tells women, here's how you can, it's self-help, right? So all these things have this strange confluence of self-help feeling and awokeness. And the replication crisis, first of all, people have tried to redo these experiments and they've just not gotten the same results. People go into these studies and can identify various ways that the studies have been done wrong. One way that you can really do a study wrong is if you just gather a lot of the data and then look for patterns because any set of data is going to exhibit some patterns. That's why you need to come up with a hypothesis and then test the specific hypothesis. So if you find a pattern in data, you need to retest a different sample for that pattern. Again, all these people probably thought they were fighting like the big, bad, awful white male patriarchy or whatever, when in fact what happened was that they were like, this is the beautiful normie intelligentsia, right? These are the TED Talks. This is the I fucking love science people, right? 
this is the normie of academia and of uh, intellectual circles is the person who listens to all of the TED Talks. TED Talks are like the intellectual equivalent of this trip to the Cayman Islands where you're saying, look at all this intellectual material I'm consuming, but it doesn't really tell you anything. Yeah, I think TED Talks are the perfect of the social science of two generations now it's been at least. People who are trying to replace the prejudices and stereotypes of normal life with their enlightenment, which is then supposed to magically transform society. They will have this self-help and culty thing that you see around TED Talks. This hero, you will imitate them, they will awaken you, they will enlighten you, and the world will be transformed. You have these solutions to problems, and, you know, these solutions to problems turn out to be also solutions to your personal problems, and also ways for you to become more important and more noticed, more approved of. Yeah. And this is something, there was a recent article on Robin DiAngelo. I like calling her the white fragility consultant, right? Because these people, most of their income comes from doing these workshops and doing these talks, you know, their academic work being peer reviewed, you know, and doing experiments is not a major part of the way they see themselves, right? They see themselves as going around and spreading this gospel to people who then very conveniently, you know, it's not hashtag blessed, but it's something similar, right? It's, I understand my white privilege and look how good a person I can be now after I've gone to this DiAngelo thing, right? It's all very similar, and I think one of the exciting things about the IDW at the beginning was an intellectual equivalent of this taking down the popular kids like we were talking about. The revenge of the nerds, of course, it's against these other nerds, but the important part is that it's the revenge, right, in the end. The new class is an academic class. It is overeducated people who get from social science and pop psychology an entire new etiquette, an entire new ideology that's supposed to justify them, make them superior to everybody else. Yeah. Of course, that's going to make a lot of people angry. Not just the crazy parts of the internet, not even just Twitter, but really most people are going to be at least somewhat interested in seeing these people taken down. And so the intellectual dark web came up. People who are at least as intelligent, at least as educated, and who don't bullshit the same way. Yeah, you know, what you're saying about most people is so... So I think one of the good things about the intellectual dark web in general, so one of the early Quillette articles I read was by Quillette's editor-in-chief, I guess, uh, Claire Lemon, who's now published me a few times. And it was in the wake of the Trump election, and it was against a libertarian. So it was kind of a family feud with this libertarian Jason Brennan, who's a philosopher, very smart guy, who's an anti-epistemic democracy person. And Claire's article was basically an attack on the concept of low-information voters. Basically, don't treat the voters as idiots. The voters know more than you think. They're thinking harder than you think they are. They're being more rational than you think they are. And this is an important early theme in the IDW. You know, one of the things I learned is this concept from Lee Justin of stereotype accuracy. You know, the idea of stereotype accuracy, it sounds more dangerous than it actually is. It doesn't mean that people are always right when they stereotype people. It basically means that when people create stereotypes, it's because they're trying to represent the world accurately, not because they're trying to. So if you think about what is the theory of stereotypes that you hear most often in the media, well, it has something to do with, oh, you need to think about the other in this way in order to justify your self-conception, or you have some Freudian or some Hegelian master-slave thing where you need to basically come up with a working conception on which your view of your own superiority is justified or something like that. And stereotype accuracy is, of course, very anti that. It just basically says, look, stereotypes help people make predictions. They're not perfect. There's still a lot of bias. But in general, people use stereotypes because they're trying to get more accurate information about the people around them, not less accurate information. 
And this is another interesting contradiction in the intellectual dark web that so stereotype accuracy is this anti-bias idea, but actually in general, the intellectual dark web are happy to talk about biases just of a different kind, not racial and gender biases, but these so-called cognitive biases, right? So it's been a mainstay of intellectual dark web discourse for a long time that ordinary reasoners can't be trusted because they have all these cognitive biases that affect the way they think and they're tribal and they have confirmation bias and they're motivated reasoners and things like that. And, you know, it's this kind of hidden message of, oh, you need to be in the intellectual dark web so you can be the ninja who doesn't have these, you know, who maneuvers their way around clumsy human biases. And so that's always been a worry of mine with, you know, the neoclassical liberals or the classical neoliberals or whatever you want to call them. There's a sense in which, okay, you trust the low information voters not to be biased in this one way, but you're replacing it with this other class of biases that somebody like Steven Pinker or Jonathan Haidt will talk about, just biases of a kind of less political valence. So I don't know exactly how to make sense of that, but I wish that the intellectual dark web had been more of a vindication of ordinary reasoning. There are philosophers who have taken this sort of perspective. So Elizabeth Anscombe, for instance, talked about, you know, philosophy should basically start from ordinary moral and, you know, metaphysical reasoning and, you know, in general should vindicate it. Um, It shouldn't add too much machinery on top of it. Yeah, I think you're right. There's no getting around the fact that it's precisely what made the intellectual dark web successful. These are writers and speakers, professors, debaters, people who took naturally to intellectual confrontation, so also to podcasting and any number of other uh-huh. kinds of ways of speaking to vast audiences in an authoritative way. You know, made their own version of the TED Talk, their own version of the whatever else right finding the normie internet it's precisely these things that made them so powerful that also inclined them to think that well you just need this one cool trick now it's not right yeah one cool trick it's like the education that comes with decades in academia for this guy or that guy or the other one but it still has the same character people are going to be enlightened by this other version of enlightenment now it's not going to be woke hysteria it's going to be liberalism without the wokeness but it too is quite prone of course to hysteria because these people also feel that oh my god what the hell is happening in this world right yeah it's one thing to say i can coolly and calmly go through the pathologies of the woke It's another thing to say I can coolly and calmly think about what they're doing to society and not really worry about it a lot. Right. No, it's going to involve people in a very strong moral way and they are going to bring all the passions that everybody else brings to these things as well. They're just going to hope that they have some one cool intellectual trick that makes them superior. That Brett Weinstein is an expert in evolutionary theory, so that will give him a safe ground. The world may be right. going crazy around him, but he will clarify it and never risk his own sanity in the process. Or his studies in psychology will help Jordan Peterson realize what's screwed up with everybody else, but he'll be safe in the process. And right. so with all the other ones. And this is not entirely defensible, either intellectually or politically. It's not clear that these people are that smart, nor is it clear <laughs> that they have that much self-knowledge. But it is this lack of self-knowledge that made stars of them and, you know, for very good reasons. It really is the case that so many millions of people were looking for somebody to tell them seriously that you don't need to obey all these woke people who get on your nerves. They are not your moral superiors. And guess what? They're not your intellectual superiors. So you can see why they became stars and indeed deserve their fame. 
Yeah, I think what you said about lacking self-knowledge, just on a personal level, you know, I am much less self-aware than I was back during the part of my life where I was much more anxious and depressed. A lot of it had to do with just being much more aware. And I think part of the underbelly of the internet is, you know, the beautiful people often don't even see what they are doing. They just kind of act, right? And it's for the troubled people to observe and to constantly be observing themselves and to never get out of the cycle of observing and questioning and self-doubting and things like that. So certainly, is the intellectual dark web the new normies? Well, it's inevitable, right? And to a certain extent, success is when you become the new normie, right? When you do become the new popular kid. And um, you bring that kind of confidence to it that makes so many millions of people yeah. admire them. Yeah. You know, I think it was difficult for the online left and it's going to be difficult for the intellectual dark web in exactly the same way, because if your story about yourself involves being marginalized or being silenced or whatever the verb is, you know, being the nerd that needs to take revenge, then suddenly you have all these social media followers. Suddenly you're getting paid. I forget who it is. I think maybe it's one of the Weinstein brothers or, or somebody. Whenever they have an argument with somebody on Twitter, you know, they have like three lines of an argument. And then the next statement is, oh, we need to find a better venue for this, which means, you know, let's find a stadium that people will pay to attend us having this argument in person. Right. This is something that, you know, back when Charles Murray, when Alison Stanger at Middlebury was had her neck strangled or whatever during the Charles Murray talk. I forget what that incident was. One point that a lot of people made was like, okay, sure, there's a sense in which Charles Murray is under threat of being canceled or being silenced. But at the same time, what are Charles Murray's speaking fees? He makes, you know, 20 grand or something for one appearance. Of course, maybe somebody was trying to silence them, but obviously the Weinstein brothers haven't been silenced. It hasn't been successful. Jordan Peterson hasn't been silenced. Quite the opposite, right? So although there's an attempt that you can decry, you also need to be aware of the reality, just like the something awful kids who now work at the New Republic, some of them who work at Harvard or Princeton as professors need to be aware that now you have the power and what do you do with it now that you have the self-awareness to realize you're no longer the nerd who needs revenge. Now you have a certain modicum of success to a certain extent, for both of these groups of people, it can start to be a little unattractive to continue kind of going on about being victimized in various ways. Yeah, with enough success, it turns out that victimization is just such an attractive story to tell. We have to keep the fight going. We are in danger for our self-respect and our, even our ability to speak. And it's not clear how often these things are true, but it is obvious that without these things, the cult goes away. Right. And at the same time that it would lead people back into the dissatisfaction where they are looking for somebody to hate and somebody mm -hmm. to smack down the people they hate. This cannot be a solution to the problems of democratic hysteria made possible by a way more democratic technology of communications. Right. It's not just that now you can scream back at the TV. It's that you are the TV. Everybody is the TV and there's a lot right. of screaming going every which way. It's harder to create celebrities and it's much easier to take them down. And it's also, of course, very satisfying. Cancel culture is the end of an entire system of communications where people believe that you could make anything popular by putting it on TV because so many people, millions of people would watch it. Well, it turns out it doesn't quite work that way, that the technology democratizes, everybody's trying to become a celebrity. It's harder to justify the distinction between the people shouting and the people listening. Right. And That's certainly right. They keep changing places to some extent, and you can see why everybody's insecure and for that reason also irresponsible. <laughs> yeah, the people have become the TV. That's very evocative. 
you would expect that the point of establishing something like the intellectual dark web is that it will create at least islands in the flood since people will have something reliable and honorable and decent all in all to go to they won't be accused of being monsters because they're not woke but also they won't have to just engage in hate to own the woke they could just listen to people they admire and try and figure out what it is that they can learn or should learn that's not entirely impossible, of course. Maybe there is some new form of public discourse, new press, new opinionating, new self-help that's going to come out of this with this incredibly right. enlightenment, scientific, social science slant to it. And it's going to help people. It's going to be some kind of university for people who don't go to university or who are trying to recover from having gone to college right, in the yeah. first place. <laughs> Both happen. So yeah. maybe, but I am somewhat skeptical of all these people, partly because they're such celebrities and mm -hmm. this is an age where celebrities are going to go down. But partly it has to do with, as you put it to me, one of the greatest things about the intellectual dark web is that these people do not hysterically insist that everything is political. They do right. not insist on making everything into a quarrel as though principle about justice can deal with absolutely every part of your life. They are really good at that. But at the same time, it's hard not to notice that all of these people have zero serious education about politics and nevertheless opine about it endlessly. Right. The vice of intellectuals since always. The evolutionary scientist Brett Weinstein or the psychologist Jordan Peterson or Eric Weinstein who's in math. And these people are not particularly competent to judge politics and right. they seem completely decided never to learn about politics as its own domain, although they would claim domain-specific knowledge for themselves and prove it in the various domains where they have been active. So that is something strange, and I relate that to what I meant about the one weird trick. Right. So Brett Weinstein goes around reassuring people that he not only will reveal the world to them through evolutionary biology, but that he will make it safe for them. He will reveal how sexual selection drives human beings as also other populations mm -hmm. and then tell them that now you know that this is the game, you don't have to play it because why would you play the game? So he's somehow through science raising people above nature itself <laughs> and he does this without blinking. It never occurs to him to ask himself, if you're the product of evolution, how did you arrive at this superpower of science that is apparently right. immune to evolution? Yeah, your point about not letting politics have its own domain in the intellectual dark web, that's not something I've ever really thought about. But the danger is immediately apparent to me because we have the same problem in philosophy, that everybody outside of philosophy thinks that they have the answer to philosophical questions. One of the most common populations for this is coders. You know, programmers are always telling me how they've, with again, just one weird trick, think like a coder and you solve a philosophical problem. It doesn't occur to a lot of these people. Well, maybe the way to solve a philosophical problem is by thinking like a philosopher. You know, the way to solve a political problem is by thinking like a politician. You know, the right way to engage with it and actually understand the problem. And then you understand why it's not so easy to solve. And so I definitely think that maybe what we can say about the intellectual dark web is, you know, we've gone from one weird trick to a larger bag of several weird tricks. Maybe if we are not too optimistic, we can think that's the best we can sometimes hope for.
that we've gone from an intellectual culture where to a certain extent everybody was saying the one frame for everything is politics and especially identity politics. You know, there's no topic that is not best explained by current critical theory inflected identity politics attitudes and woke progressive culture as exemplified in prestige media of America circa 2015 to 2019. And now you have this wider variety of things where some people it's financial modeling, some people it's evolutionary theory, some people it's really weird takes about consciousness. And Sam Harris does these things of yoga and meditation and takes weird drugs, you know, like a new agey thing. And so maybe the best we can hope for is that there's going to be an expansion of the number of kind of ideas that are under public debate. I certainly do. I have the same feeling you do. A really ideal thing would be not to have people just offering a bunch of different totalizing frames for the world, but for people to understand, you know, political thinking and philosophical thinking and mathematical thinking and biological thinking and to understand all these different ways of thinking about problems. And maybe even, and I don't even know if I understand this, but to understand to a certain extent why one is proper in one arena and another is proper in another arena and why they're all valuable types of knowledge on their own. That certainly is the ideal of an educated person, but maybe it's not what we get. I was talking about having gone to a liberal arts college. In a sense, what I just described is the liberal arts ideal. And I actually think that the fall of small liberal arts colleges is a terrible part of And, you know, I take it very seriously just because I I went to one and maybe hope to teach it one these days. Other people, they say, oh, it's a story about Middlebury. You know, it's very Middlebury is a very small college. To me, it's very serious because I went to a college like Middlebury. And I think the liberal arts ideal is a really important part of American education. I do think that that's a place where the one weird trick of politics has come to dominate. So maybe maybe the best we can hope for is having several weird tricks. Yeah, I think you're right that we are stuck in this situation where on the one hand, there are moral imperatives, disagreement on which turns you into a monster in public speech. And on the other hand, you have people who deny that politics is even its own thing because they're trying so desperately to defend themselves from that kind of attack. And it's not a great situation, but given the alternatives, it's obvious that sanity should prevail and people have some respect for knowledge for its own sake or for the achievements of hardworking knowledge are more respectable than people who are hysterical. You know, the funny thing is that these people are trying to do something like what you're saying, a reconstruction of academia, or exactly right. as you said, it's the university that articulates the universe for you. It is a right. community of knowledge where different kinds of knowledge are supposedly going to come into some relation. But of course, as we all know, it doesn't work. Right. The university led to the insane students of the 60s and, you know, the insane students of nowadays. And my guess is that those people are insane for very good reasons. They were made promises that aren't coming through and they don't know how to deal with that problem. Hmm. And if yeah. they can take down the entire institutional system with them, I mean, they might. It might be that the institutional system doesn't even want to defend itself or can defend itself. Right. I wish I could collect my thoughts on the university. I mean, I think it's so, the factors that lead people to have student protests, I mean, I'm sure there's this whole critique of the student as consumer, but then a lot of people making that critique weren't paying 50 grand a year. You know, the price of an education is ridiculous. You have the student loan crisis. Even my undergrads, I tell this, you know, you have to understand that the university is a very strange place. Right now, there's at least three different things the university is tasked with doing, four really. It's a place where a lot of the intellectual research in our society is funded and is accomplished. It's a place where people are taught, ideally in a kind of liberal arts education. 
it's a place where people are trained to work and a liberal arts education is not really that great a lot of the time at training people to be professionals in the modern day. And it's also a place where young people are given a camp for several years to experiment, you know, psychedelically and psychosexually and all these other things. You know, you do drugs and you have sex in this safe space with other people your age and you go to football games and you go to parties and everything like that. And all these things are thrown together. And when you disaggregate it, you think to yourself, you know, what moron put all these things together as the coming to age experience of an American youth, right? Why would you think they go together? And my original thought, of course, things have changed in the past four years or so. But when I first encountered Quillette in maybe late 2015, early 2016, it's pretty early in, in Quillette's existence. I thought to myself, well, this is like an academy in exile, right? These are the parts of the academy. And back then, the content on Quillette was much more questionable. But in, in a way, it was kind of like, well, you don't need to believe it, but you can judge the arguments. And there are arguments about things like genetic confounding. Genetic confounding is the idea that just as if you do a genetic study, you need to control for socioeconomic factors. Well, it turns out that the people who do the genetic studies are told to control for socioeconomic factors, but the people who do the socioeconomic studies are not told to control for genetic factors, right? So it's just this basic methodological intellectual problem with the way a lot of our research is generated. So it was this academy in exile. And it was very exciting at the time. And this was in the midst of the protests at Yale, protests at Missouri, protests at tons of small colleges like Smith or Claremont McKenna. And it did strike me at that time that maybe this research task of the university is just not ever going to work with all these other tasks that have to do with raising young people and taking care of young people. And maybe that shouldn't come as such a surprise as it does to, you know, many of us who were scandalized by microaggression trainings and things like that. Maybe we should say to ourselves, well, why did we ever think this relationship between research and in loco parentis caretaking was going to work? Yeah, I think that now it's obvious in a way that maybe it wasn't in the 50s when the universities turned into this kind of research arm of the U.S. government, essentially. Right. Largely for Cold War purposes, but also for corporate purposes, for all sorts of things that might be developed. You don't know what the fruits of science are going to be. You have to keep trying. Now, obviously, these things do not go together. And it would be impossible to argue that education really has much to do with what you'd call STEM. Right. You can't get American kids to take those subjects. It's called freedom. And if they don't want to do science or math or anything in engineering, what are you going to do about it? Right. So stuff the country actually might need more math and more engineering and so forth. But how you go about it would involve a vast recreation of the university. And so even getting education and on the other hand, research to go together in any practical way. Yeah, that's a tall order or to match those things with the moral imperatives of activism for 19 or 20 year olds, that's not going to work either. Yeah, of course. You could get the activists to let the kids who just want to read stuff go on with their education. Right. So this is one of my favorite clips from the year of protest in 2015. I think it was from that year. There's a library at some school, maybe the University of Minnesota or something like that. But it's a bunch of student protesters protesting, I forget what, in a library, you know, and saying no justice, no peace, or this is what democracy looks like or something like that. And this tall, serious looking Asian kid in glasses comes up to them and he yells, hey, and actually somehow they quiet down for him. It's very impressive. And he just says, hey, this is library. In a way, I think he is the hero of the university as conceived, just saying, look, there's other purposes for being here. We have to have the time to study, you know? 
in the end. But who knows? I think there are fewer student protests now than there were a few years ago. Maybe the fervor will die down. I certainly think professionally and academically speaking, I certainly hope that Trump is not reelected for selfish reasons, among others, is because if Trump is reelected, then the fervor in academia will reach just a complete fever pitch. And my hope is that people will learn how to refocus their attention on something other than this sort of stuff starting in, you know, 2021. But we'll see, maybe it will just get worse and the contradictions will continue to be heightened. I have no idea. Yeah, this is really hard to predict, but it's not plausible, at least to me, that the system as operating is going to last much longer. Not least, of course, because there will be massive political action on the university to deal with college debt, to deal with public funding, to deal with right. these sorts of things. And it's not going to be something built on national sweetness and consensus because there's none of that now. Right, so yeah. Things are not going to get better. I think that means that things like the intellectual dark web are even nobler for trying to reconstitute right. the university in exile. And maybe they will coalesce in some way so that these people can figure out what it is that they have in common and what it is that they could do together that has a future, that has an yeah. audience and a future. And I certainly wish them the best and we'll see what of this generous version of enlightenment where people can talk about science and they can deal with human affairs in light of science. And nobody loses his cool. People don't start out here <laughs> doing crazy stuff. Yeah. It seems wishful to me, but I certainly wish people the best in this regard. Yeah, and certainly um, I think it's a tall order, especially for the personalities associated with it right now. But if the IDW is successful in creating this alternate academic sphere, then the more power to them would uh, be an amazing outcome. Well, Oliver, I think we've reached the end of this conversation. Yeah. I think we've rambled through a lot of stuff about what it means to be online <laughs> and to try to think through what intellectual argument and reflection on human things from a scientific or an academic point of view might contribute. And hopefully our audience gets a sense not only of the craziness of the life online, but of why there has been an attempt by these people called the intellectual dark web to try to reorganize academia and intelligent argument in a publicly available and public facing way. Thanks a lot for joining me and let's yeah. try and figure out how to do another talk on academia and other such topics. Yeah, absolutely. It was a pleasure. Our first conversation. I'm looking forward to doing more. Yeah, certainly. And thank you for having me. Bye bye. Bye-bye.